he will provide. Any of our children who would like to go to Stepping Stones or the nursery, you're free to go. And the rest of you, please turn with me to Luke chapter 21. We are returning to our study through the gospel according to Luke. And this morning we pick up with verse 5, and I'll read through verse 19. This is the word of God. Please give it your full attention. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, Jesus said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified. For these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Well, it's the beginning of a new year, and it's a time when we tend to focus on our future. What about your future? How do you think about your future? Are you expecting the future to be better than your past? What's really struck me over the past few years is that we are entering into a very pessimistic era of our culture. Pew Research Center did a survey of Americans recently. They said, what do you expect the country of America to be like in the year 2050? And the results of that survey were that people were pretty pessimistic about the future. Americans expect the gap between the rich and the poor to grow greater in that time. They expect the political divisions, which are already pretty bad, to become worse. They expect the environment to be in a much worse condition, and they expect America to be much less important in the world. I came across another poll done by Gallup, where they actually took a poll back in 2018 to ask whether adults expect to live a better life than their parents lived. And that's always been kind of an assumed perspective of Americans, that we expect to do better than our parents did. And certainly I look at my life and the ways that God has blessed myself and my family, certainly in a material way, at least in a better way than my parents' generation. That was always what we expected. In 2018, 60% of Americans, American adults, expected that they would live a better life than their parents have lived. 
But when they took that same, asked that same question, took that same poll this year, it's 42%. And we are probably the most optimistic society that's ever lived on the face of the earth. And yet, we are becoming much more pessimistic about our future. Human beings, because we are made in the image of God, need hope. We're not animals. Animals don't need hope to live, to exist, but we, as human beings made in the image of God, we need hope. We need it as much as we need the air that we breathe, as much as the food that we eat, as much as the roof over our head, we need hope. You know, that's what's different for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in this life. Our hope is not in the economy. Our hope is not in our health. Our hope is not in our government. Our hope is not in the environment, anything else in this world. Our hope is based solely upon the promises of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. This passage from Luke 21, we're going to be looking at this passage this week, next week, and a little bit of the week afterwards. We're going to be looking at this passage for these next couple of weeks, and it's all filled with promises that Jesus makes. But they are not promises of a bright future for his disciples. Pretty stark images he lays before his disciples about what to expect about their earthly future. And we're going to see in a moment that these promises for the future of his disciples in his day are true for his disciples in every day to one degree or another. And I think increasingly so for those of us who live in this culture. As we look at these promises, you can see that Christ's promises for his church in this world cannot be summarized by the famous phrase, your best life now. Cannot be summarized by the phrase health and wealth. What he's going to talk about is the dark future of Israel in his generation, but of the world as we await his coming and his coming in judgment. Jesus, it's been many weeks now since we've looked at the gospel according to Luke, and so just for context, remember where we are in Jesus' earthly life. This is during his last week. He has entered into Jerusalem, been welcomed by the crowds like a king. But while he's been in Jerusalem during this last week of the Passover, the Jewish leaders have been plotting his murder. And so he's preparing here, his, in the next several passages, he's going to be preparing his disciples for living and serving him in this world after he is crucified. Again, something that they're not fully comprehending at this point. He's preparing them for life in this world after he has died, been raised from the dead, and ascends to the right hand of the Father in heaven. They're walking through Jerusalem, as we know from the other Gospels. They're on their way to the Mount of Olives, just outside of Jerusalem. And it says that his disciples were astounded by the temple, the great temple in the, on Temple Mount in the middle of Jerusalem. They were amazed by the size, the beauty, the magnificence of it. The temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple at that, in that day, was one of the great wonders of the, of the ancient world. King Herod was in the midst of an 80-year expansion, renovation, and beautification process uh, program for that temple. 
It started uh, several decades before the time of Christ, and it continued for several decades after the crucifixion of Christ. It took 80 years to finally bring the temple to its state that Herod had dreamed it would be. It was part of his legacy to build the most magnificent house of worship on the planet. Just to give you a little bit of a sense, give you a few statistics about the size of the temple and the beauty of it, it covered third, the temple area, if you included all the courts and all the, the areas related to the temple, it covered 36 acres. It was covered with gold. It would shine in the sunlight because it was covered with real gold. It had marble all over, expensive, fine, white marble. It had the highest places of its roof were 80 feet high. The stones that were built, that used to build the temple, the typical building stones weighed about 100 tons, and the foundation stones that they used weighed over 600 tons. So you can get a sense of the, the majesty of the building, and this is what the disciples were amazed by. They had, many of them had seen it before as they had traveled to Jerusalem for the feast, but they're amazed again to see it. And as they are marveling at it, Jesus makes a shocking prophecy in verse six, verse 6. He says, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This is unimaginable to his disciples, that the temple would be so utterly destroyed. And they would understand that this could only happen by God's judgment. That's how it always happened in the past. When the first Solomon's temple was destroyed, it was in God's judgment against his people when the Babylonians were allowed to come and discipline and, and punish his people and take them away as captives. So they associated it certainly with judgment, God's judgment upon his people. And it is what happened, literally, in 70 AD, a generation later. The Jews in 66 AD rose up in an insurrection against the Roman authority, started a four-year off-and-on war between the Jews and the Romans. And finally, in 70 AD, the Roman emperor sent his general Titus into Jerusalem to lay siege to Jerusalem, to destroy Jerusalem, and to destroy the temple. The Jewish historian of that day, Josephus, says that over a million Jews were killed and over 100,000 were enslaved. And literally, the nation and religion of the Jews was brought to an end. Literally, every stone of the temple, those massive stones that I just described, literally every one was taken down by the Romans. You may say, well, what about the Wailing Wall? We can still see the Wailing Wall. That wasn't that part of the temple. It actually was a retaining wall for the foundation of the temple. It wasn't part of the temple. Those stones are gone. 70 AD was a significant judgment upon Israel. It was the end of the Old Covenant, Old Testament era where God's people were made up largely of the nation of Israel and the nation of Israel represented God's people. But what happens after the death and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ is that the church is born and the church is the new Israel. The church is the people of God and God's plan and purpose for Israel and its what had become a legalistic religion was done and came under his judgment. And so because the disciples associate so clearly the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple with God's judgment, 
they see this as an end times prophecy. And so they say, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign of these things when these things are to take place? It's interesting in Matthew's account, in, in Matthew uh, 24, where he gives his account of the same interaction between Jesus and his disciples, he adds to their question something else they said, which is what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So you can see that they don't just want to know when is the temple going to be destroyed. They see the two things as being the same. They see the destruction of the temple as being the end of the world and the final judgment. Of course, at this point, they do not understand. They don't even understand the crucifixion and resurrection yet, let alone the fact that this is Christ's first coming and that there would be, as we now know, 2,000 years at least between his first coming and his second coming. They did not yet see this gap in this plan of God for our salvation. And so I want to address that because that is really a key to understanding this passage. It's an interpretation principle that you have to understand in order to rightly understand this passage and many other biblical prophecies that the two comings of Christ, what we call the first coming of Christ, his incarnation, his earthly life, his teaching, his ministry, his torture, death, resurrection and ascension that's his first coming and his second coming we see them in hindsight now as being two separate great events that together bring about our full salvation but prior to that as prophets looked forward to that event they often put the two together and when they when the prophets talked about the coming of Christ they often talked about his two comings as though it was one event let me give you an example to, to just show you what I mean on the day of Pentecost, when the church was born, when the Spirit came and descended upon the church, Peter quotes from Joel chapter 2. And he says, in your, in your hearing, in your sight today, this prophecy has been fulfilled. And this is what the prophecy says in Joel chapter 2. It was written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ. It says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit. You say, yeah, okay, that makes sense. Pentecost. Based on the first coming of Christ, the spirit was poured out upon the church and Joel prophesies it here. What's interesting, though, is the very next verse, verse 30 says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on earth and blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And you say, wait. That's the second coming, isn't it? How, why is he putting them, shoving them together like it's one event? Well, that's what we call prophetic perspective. As prophets looked forward to the comings of Christ, they often talked about them as though they were one event because in the mind of God, really, they are one event. We are so tied into history and the passage of time, we see it differently. But from God's perspective, the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ is all about one great act of saving us from our sins and redeeming us completely. And so that's the way the prophets often talked about it. The way prophetic perspective as an interpretive principle was explained to me one time, which I found helpful, was and I, because I've done this, I've made this trip. We used to make a trip when we lived in Kansas City, from Kansas City to the mountains and Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And when you drive across Kansas and when you drive across eastern Colorado, that is one of the most boring trips you're ever going to make in your life. The landscape, sorry about this if you're from the Midwest, but I'm sorry, but for, for those of us who live in the mountains and in hills and trees and forests of Pennsylvania, 
it's a very boring trip. The landscape does not change from Kansas City all the way until you get to well, very well into Colorado, hours and hours of driving. But then you start to see this, this line of purple mountains on the horizon. And it gets, as you get closer to it, they get bigger. But as you get closer to the Rocky Mountains, it looks like just one long line of mountains, doesn't it? It's just like they're side by side next to each other. But when you get up next to them, you actually get to Denver or wherever you're going, you realize that there are mount, huge mountains right in front of you, but there are miles and miles and miles and miles between those mountains and the next range of mountains and the next range of mountains. And some of those mountains you thought were in one line actually are separated by quite a distance. And that is a good illustration of how the prophets looked at the two comings of Christ. They saw them together from a distance. But we know that there is a great period of time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. One preacher said that you have to read many biblical prophecies with bifocals. In other words, you need to be able to see clearly that those prophecies applied to the near future of the prophet who gives the word, but also applied sometimes in a greater way to greater, bigger events later in history. And that helps you to understand prophecy. Honestly, it helps you to understand the whole book of Revelation. If you read the book of Revelation, it can be a very confusing book, but it helps to understand that the visions given in the book of Revelation through the Apostle John do apply directly to many real events in the first century. Things that the early church went through in terms of persecution by the Romans. But those visions also speak to persecutions and events that happen between the second com first coming and second coming of Christ during the entire era of the church until Christ comes. And that's why there are many references that also refer to his second coming in the book of Revelation. Okay, enough of a lesson on hermeneutics there. Let's get back to Luke 21. Here, Jesus prophesies events in Luke 21 that we're going to be looking at the next couple weeks that did take place in the first century. He's telling those disciples who are actually going to live through these things that this is what you're going to see until God comes in judgment and destroys Jerusalem and the temple. But these kinds of things are also going to happen during the entire time between the first coming and the second coming of Christ. And so we too can expect the kind of events that Jesus talks about here. And so we can ask the question, how are we here in this century to live by faith in a world that is headed towards destruction? Judgment is coming. The world will be destroyed. Jesus has promised it. The prophets have promised it. The word of God says it. It is true. How do we live in light of that? It's interesting that the disciples here asked Jesus for a sign. Jesus, tell us what's going to happen so that we have warning. We're your people. You know, if you really care about us, you know, give us a sign before you bring about this great judgment, before Jerusalem's destroyed, before the temple's destroyed, before all these things happen. Give us a sign. Isn't that the way human beings are? We want to know if pain and suffering is coming. We want a warning. We want a heads up that something's going to be really difficult. Something's going to be painful to endure. I mean, just think about if you're sitting in your doctor's office, sitting on that cold steel table, waiting for the nurse or the doctor to come in and give you a shot. You don't want that doctor sneaking up behind you and sticking you in the arm with the, with the, 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 you know, the needle without you knowing he's coming. You want a warning. You'll say, okay, you know, I don't want to watch you do it, but I want to know you're about to do it. Give me a warning. Why do you do that? 
because you want to prepare yourself. You want to manage your fear. You want to handle it. And so we want warnings when suffering is coming, but typically God does not give us warnings. Some of the worst sufferings in life hit us blindside. We have no idea it's coming. That's because in, in, when you look at prophecies, and too many Christians look at the prophecies in the scripture as though they are given as signs so that we can prepare ourselves, so that we can handle this. But that's not why prophecy is given in scripture. Prophecy is given in scripture to comfort, not to help you prepare yourself for what may come in the future. It's given to confirm God's word and to give us comfort in his promises. And so Jesus, interestingly, they ask for a sign, but he doesn't give them one, does he? Actually, in verse 27, I think he does, but we'll get to that in a couple weeks. He doesn't give them a sign. What he does, actually, he gives them anti-signs. He gives them things that aren't going to be signs at the end. He gives them a whole list of things that say, these aren't signs at the end. These are the kind of things that you can expect until judgment comes. And this is where it becomes really relevant to us. This is what life in this fallen world, while we wait for the second coming of Christ, this is what it's going to look like. This is what to expect. And in the midst of listing these things to expect, both in the first century and every century since then, until Christ comes again, he gives us four commands. Phil Riken, when he preached a sermon on this passage, used four commands to summarize it, and I think it was good, so I'll use it. First of all, he says, don't be deceived. Secondly, he says, don't be afraid. Thirdly, he says, don't miss your opportunity. And fourth, he says, don't give up. First, don't be deceived. His first instruction, in light of what life will be like until he comes again, don't be deceived. Verse 8, he says, see that you are not led astray. That really helps you to understand that that's a lot of what life in this world is going to be like for you as a follower of Christ, is to... Do everything you can do to avoid being deceived and led astray. The spiritual war that is behind everything else in history. Matter of fact, it helps you to understand human history. If you understand that the real war that is behind all of human history is not about wealth. It's not about territory. It's not about power. It's always been about truth. It's been a war between lies and truth. The war began in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve believed the lie of Satan instead of accepting and believing and obeying the truth of God. And every time Israel was judged in the Old Testament, it's because they did not believe and obey the word of God. It's always been a battle between truth and a lie. And here Jesus warns his disciples that that battle is going to go on, that spiritual battle behind all of world history is going to go on until he comes again. He says, many will come in my name, claiming his authority, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. How often false teachers, you just look at the history of the church, how often false teachers have used interpretations of prophecy in order to lay claim to the authority of Christ. Maybe not saying they are Christ, although some did and some have, but they lay claim to the authority of Christ because of what they teach about prophecy. They use prophecy for nefarious reasons. And the New Testament is full of warnings about false teachers who claim Christ's authority but contradict and corrupt his word. 
an important principle to understand so that you may not be deceived, so that you may not be led astray, is that authority in the church is always based and rooted in submission to God's word. That is how we know what the will of the Lord is. Only by his revealed word. That's how we know his will. That's how we know who he is. That's how we know who Jesus Christ is. That's how we know how salvation works. Because God has revealed it in his word. Do not be deceived. Believe the word of God. The revealed written word of God, the Bible. Believe the word of God and obey the word of God. Lest you be led astray. Lest you be deceived. One of the very common things I hear among those who depart from biblical doctrine in the church is that we need to care more about love than truth. We need to care more about love than biblical doctrine. But my challenge to that is, how do you know what love is if you don't believe the Word of God? The Word of God defines what love is. The world says love is love. That's no definition. The Bible defines what love is. The Bible defines what love looks like. You see, Christians are easily deceived when they're biblically illiterate. And here's why I'm pessimistic about the future of the church in my culture. It's because, by and large, Christians are biblically illiterate in this age. I saw one evidence of this, another Barna survey, George Barna survey. They um, asked uh, parents of Christian teens. This was trying to see what effect this is going to have on the next generation. So those who are Christian, par- Christian parents or parents of preteens, how many of them claim to be Christian? 62% of them claim to be Christian. But then they asked him a few brief questions about the basics of a biblical worldview. And after asking those questions, they said that only 2% of these parents actually held to a biblical worldview. That does not bode well for the future of the church. Paul says when he wrote to Timothy, he talks about Timothy's upbringing in the word of God. And he says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he gives a warning in verse 13. He says, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Do not be misled, do not be deceived. Know the scriptures. Second instruction Jesus gives in light of life between the two comings, he says, don't be afraid. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Wars and tumults are not signs that the second coming is imminent. We should expect war. We like to talk about war as though it's some terrible, unusual thing, but it is. there's actually very little else that is more typical of human society than war. Since, and I don't, know how they, I don't know how they calculated this, but it's an interesting statistic, that since the days of Moses, so we're talking back 1400 BC, give or take, since the days of Moses, the world has only been truly at peace without any war going on whatsoever 
8% of the time. And if you think, well, we enlightened Americans certainly could do better than that, we've only been not at war, totally at peace, and not involved in any war of any kind for 7% of our history. People are totally depraved. People are prideful, people are self-centered, people are, are competing with one another by nature. We should expect war between the two comings of Christ. That's what he's promising. And then he goes on to list terrifying events that have been happening throughout history. Not only wars between the nations, but also natural disasters, and he particularly mentions earthquakes, which have always in scripture associated with the judgment of God. Famines, pestilences, or as you probably would know them better, pandemics. Strange events in the skies. These are the kind of things that terrify people. If your hope is in this world, they should terrify you. If your hope is in anything that is contained in this life, then those things should terrify you. They should test what it, where your faith lies. Then in verses 12 through 17, Jesus adds one more thing to the list, persecution. He prepares his disciples to, be expect, to expect to be hated and persecuted for his name's sake, and we can still expect that today. Certainly the first century Christians, the early church, was persecuted viciously. But there are statistics out there that you can find easily that will show you that more persecution has happened in the last century than in any century prior to that. The persecution of the church goes on. He says, you will be hated. In the gospel, according to John, he said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. They're going to hate you for my name's sake. He says that synagogues and kings and governors are going to persecute them. Now, of course, that's in the context of the first century. The synagogues were the religious authority in the early church. The religious authority, false religion, but the religious authority in, in Israel, they will persecute you but also kings and governors. So as it is still to this day, true believers are persecuted both by those who claim to be authorities in the church and by civil authority. It's happening all over the world. And it's going to happen more often here. Unless the Lord pours out a great revival in our land, we are going to see a lot more open persecution of the church than we have seen prior to this in our lifetimes. He, Jesus even promises that he says that some of our parents and brothers and relatives and friends are going to hate us and betray us to be persecuted. Like he said elsewhere, he didn't come to bring peace. He brought, came to bring a sword to separate families because some would bow to him as Lord and some would reject him. Our hope can't even be in those most precious relationships of our lives, our family and our friends. If that's where our hope lies, it's a false hope. So don't be afraid. Don't be deceived. Don't be afraid. The third instruction he gives, don't miss your opportunity. Verse 13, he says it plainly. This, talking about suffering and persecution, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. Wars, natural disasters, famines, diseases, and especially persecutions are literally the time for the church to shine. We are here as a city on a hill. We are here as a light to the nations. And our light shine, never shines more brightly than when we stand by faith in Christ when the world is falling apart around us. Our mission 
And the American church, because of our prior prosperity and freedom, we have to be continually reminded that as individual Christians and as a church, our mission is not to fulfill the American dream. Our mission has nothing to do with our personal prosperity, our status, or our comfort. Our mission is to be that light in the midst of the darkness. Our mission is the great commission that Christ gave to his church when he ascended to the throne in heaven to take the gospel to all nations and to glorify him. In Mark's account of this, in Mark chapter 13, he gives his account of this same interaction between Jesus and his disciples. He says there that Jesus also said, and the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. It is the trials and the persecutions of the church that give us the platform to glorify Christ and to proclaim the gospel. That's what Peter's getting at. And if you want to know what it's like to live as a persecuted believer, and you better be prepared for it, it's coming. Go to 1 Peter chapter 4. Actually, 1 Peter, the whole book is written to believers who are suffering persecution. But in chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. He says in verse 16, If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Don't miss your opportunity. These trials and sufferings and tragedies are going to happen. These are your opportunity to glorify Christ and proclaim his gospel. Well, why not fear, though? Why not? I mean, nothing scares us more than sharing the gospel in the face of hostility. Well, Jesus says, he gives a promise here, that we must not forget. He says, I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. When he gave that great commission to take the gospel to the nations, he said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And there's that promise here. When you have to give an answer for your faith, I will be with you. I will give you special grace in that moment. I will give you words. Of course, his words, the words of scripture, the words of the gospel. That's all we need. We see this playing out in the book of Acts with Stephen when he stood before the religious authorities in his day and shared the gospel and was stoned to death for it. When Paul stood before governors and kings and religious leaders to share the gospel God gave him the words. Jesus, by the power of his Holy Spirit, was with him to give him the words. Jesus actually says in verse 14, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I wish I could apply that in a much more general sense. I wish I could say, I don't have to prepare a sermon. I don't have to prepare a Sunday school class. I don't have to prepare a Bible study, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. We should prepare those things. We should study. We should be students of the word. We should be well prepared. Matter of fact, Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verses 14 and 15, again, talking about Christians living in a time of persecution, he says, you should know the word because knowing the word gives you the confidence to not have fear. He says, have no fear of them. This is verse 14 and 15. Have no fear of them, those who persecute you, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. You should prepare to be able to share the gospel clearly, yes, but... In that moment, do not fear, because Christ will be with you. 
His spirit will enable you. He'll give you mouth and a wisdom to give glory to him because that's your mission. And if you're on mission, he promises to not only be there for you, but to empower you to do it well. George Whitfield reminds us in his uh, great, uh, often quoted cliche, he said, we are immortal until our work on earth is done. He is with us, and he will enable us to fulfill the mission that he has called each one of us to. And when that mission is done, he'll take us to a much greater, better place and rest and relief from all the suffering. Which brings us to the last instruction that Jesus gives here. He says, don't give up. Keep going. Persevere. Endure. He seems to contradict himself in verses 16 and 18. Did you notice that? In verse 16, talking about our persecution, he says, some of you they will put to death. But then in verse 18, he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Wait a minute. <laughs> How can the, both of those things be true? Well, obviously, he's talking about our hair in two different states of existence. <laughs> he's talking about the hair that we have in our heads here as sinners in a fallen world, redeemed by grace, and then the hair that we will have when he comes again. The restored hair on a restored head, on a restored body that has been perfected by his transforming grace. We may lose our hair due to persecution or many of you due to just uh, genes, I don't know, you know, DNA. We may lose our hair in this life, but you know what Jesus told us elsewhere? He knows the exact number of the hairs on your head. That's how well he knows you. And he won't forget to add one in at the, when he comes back. He'll make sure that every hair is accounted for, but in a glorified state. That's really what he's promising here. You will be fully restored when he comes back. That's our hope. It's not in this life. It's not in our hair. It's not in our bodies. It's not in this world. When uh, the missionary, famous missionary John Patton, he was a minister of the word and, and felt a call to go onto the mission field, and so he met with his elders, and one of the elders, one of the elderly elders, an older man that was on his, uh, among his elders, um, when he told them that he felt called to go to the island of the Herb New Herbides, um, the, uh, they knew what the, that culture was like, that it was a cannibalistic culture. And so this elderly elder says to John Patton, you can't do that, you'll be eaten by cannibals. And Patton's famous answer to that was this. Sir, you are well advanced in years now. And your own prospect is to soon be laid in the grave. There to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and serve, live, but I can live, but live and die serving, honoring the Lord Jesus Christ, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Do not be afraid. Do not be misled. Take advantage of the opportunity and do not give up. God is sovereign over all of these dark, tragic, horrible events that Jesus promises will happen until he comes again. Every one of them happens according to his divine plan. And everything that happens in history is all about what he's doing for his church. And when we suffer, and we will suffer, 
And when we are persecuted especially, that is when we can fulfill our mission to glorify Christ, to show that he is our greatest treasure, that he is our hope, that they can take everything away from us. They can take our family away from us. They can take our jobs away from us. They can take our income away from us. They can take our houses. They can take away our health. They can even take away our life, but we will not deny the Lord who bought us. He is Lord. He is the only Savior, and he is coming again. And those who put their faith in him will not only be forgiven and saved, but they will be made perfect, be made like their Redeemer. And that is our hope. It's the promise of our Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these promises, even the promises that life will be difficult because, boy, is it realistic. We do face trials and suffering and even persecution, even in the place of freedom and, and prosperity in which we've been raised, in which we've lived. We are seeing increasing hostility to Christ and his gospel. Lord, thank you for giving us a realistic vision of what awaits us in the years to come. Lord, help us to be faithful Give us a mouth and wisdom to speak of Christ to those who need to hear about him. Keep our faith and hope in his promises strong and make them even stronger. And Lord, I pray that Christ will come soon. Bring an end to all this suffering and bring, the full to, full, bring to us the fullness of our salvation. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.